Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Betty Broderick. But first, your true crime headlines. Trial is underway for a former Dallas police officer accused of murder and the shooting death of her neighbor in his own home. 31-year-old Amber Geiger, a five-year veteran of the Dallas PD, had just returned to her apartment building after a 13-and-a-half-hour shift. She was still in uniform when she entered the fourth-floor apartment of 26-year-old Botham Jean and shot him with her service revolver. She told responding officers that she was fatigued from her long shift and mistook Jean's fourth-floor apartment for her own apartment one floor below his. When she approached, she found the door ajar, and she shot Jean because she believed that he was an intruder. Prosecutors have disputed the defense's claim of fatigue, introducing evidence of numerous calls and text messages between Geiger and her partner on the police force with whom she was romantically involved. They assert that Geiger was aware and alert enough to share suggestive texts and phone calls in the moments leading up to and immediately after the shooting, including texts to her partner while she was on the phone with 911. She and her partner both deleted those text messages, though investigators were later able to recover them. Jurors were also shown the visual differences between Geiger's apartment and Botham Jean's, including a bright red doormat placed outside of Jean's apartment, which she would have walked right over as she entered. Geiger was fired from the Dallas PD a few weeks after the shooting. She was initially charged with manslaughter, but a grand jury chose to indict her instead for murder. She faces up to 99 years in prison if she is convicted, and her trial is expected to last about two weeks. Michelle Carter, who was convicted of manslaughter for her role in the suicide death of her boyfriend, was denied parole last week, but will still be eligible for early release thanks to her good behavior in prison. Carter is serving a 15-month sentence for encouraging her boyfriend, 16-year-old Conrad Roy III, to take his own life. Roy died of self-inflicted carbon monoxide poisoning in 2014, and police discovered numerous texts and phone calls between Carter and Roy showing that Carter, then 17, had urged her boyfriend to follow through on his thoughts of suicide. Despite her attorney's argument that her actions were protected by her First Amendment right to free speech, Carter was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. She has served seven months of her 15-month sentence. The Massachusetts Parole Board denied her request for parole last week, calling her actions before and following Roy's suicide troubling and self-serving. Carter has been able to earn up to 10 days per month of credit towards early release. So far, she has earned 53 days, and her release has been moved from May to March. She is likely to be released even earlier than that as she acquires more credit for good behavior. A South Carolina man was found guilty of kidnapping his ex-girlfriend, who vanished in 2013 and has never been found. Prosecutors said that Sidney Moorer and his wife, Tammy Moorer, kidnapped 20-year-old Heather Elvis in 2013. Sidney Moorer had been having an affair with Elvis, and there is speculation that she may have been pregnant at the time of her disappearance. Her car was found at a boat landing the day after she went missing. Her phone and purse were not inside, 
but phone records showed that the last call she made was to a number registered to Tammy Moorer. Tammy Moorer was found guilty of kidnapping last year and is also serving a 30-year sentence. Both Sydney and Tammy Moorer were initially charged with murder, but those charges were dropped due to insufficient evidence. Heather Elvis's body has never been found, and both Moorers deny involvement in her disappearance. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Betty Broderick. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, a fairy tale marriage ends in a nightmare. This is the story of Betty Broderick. Elizabeth Ann Bisheglia was born in New York on November 7, 1947, and raised in Eastchester, a suburb just an hour outside of New York City. Elizabeth, or Betty as everyone called her, was the third of six children born to Marita and Frank Bisheglia, a successful New York City building contractor. The Bisheglias were an Irish-Italian family, and Betty's parents were strict Catholics who believed, as many did in the 1950s, in raising their daughters to become good Christian housewives and their sons to become successful breadwinners. Betty's parents expected all of their children to grow up to live in the lifestyle that they were accustomed to. Frank had worked hard to earn enough money to join the local country club. The family had a maid and wore designer clothing. And Betty and all of her siblings attended private schools. From an early age, Betty knew what her parents expected of her. Go to Catholic schools. Be careful with dating until you find a Catholic man. Support him while he works and be blessed in your later years with beautiful grandchildren. By the time Betty graduated from Eastchester High School in 1965, she had blossomed into a beautiful, smart young woman. At five foot ten, blonde and slender, Betty had model good looks and brains to match. At age 17, Betty attended the College of Mount St. Vincent, a small Catholic women's school in New York City, where she majored in early childhood education and minored in English. In 1965, just before her 18th birthday, Betty and a girlfriend traveled to a chaperoned football weekend at the University of Notre Dame. That weekend, a bookish, skinny young man in round tortoiseshell glasses approached her at a party and introduced himself by writing his name on a napkin. Daniel Thomas Broderick III, MDA, medical doctor, almost. Daniel was an Irish Catholic and pre-med student beginning his senior year at the University of Notre Dame and had just been accepted to Cornell Medical School in New York City. Betty thought Dan was a bit of a nerd. But when Dan saw Betty, he knew that she would be his wife. When Betty returned to school, Dan sent her letters and telegrams. 
Dan Broderick was born in Pennsylvania, was the oldest of nine children, and had grown up in a strict Catholic family, just like Betty. Dan's father had been the first of the Brodericks to attend college at Notre Dame and expected his boys to attend the prestigious school as well. Betty now saw in Dan Broderick an ambitious, intelligent, and very funny young man with whom she discovered she had a lot in common. By the next fall, Betty and Dan were dating. Three years later, they were married on April 12th, 1969. The wedding was held near Betty's parents' home at Immaculate Conception Church. Betty was the picture-perfect bride wrapped in lace. Dan broke with convention and wore a double-breasted blue pinstripe suit and floral tie, much to the disappointment of Betty's mother. But Betty didn't let that ruin her fairy tale wedding. Photos from that day show a beautiful young couple smiling and laughing on their way to happily ever after. But the honeymoon was literally short-lived, as Betty was soon disappointed to discover that Dan wasn't exactly Prince Charming. Dan stopped courting Betty immediately and dismissed the maids at the honeymoon house, expecting Betty to get straight to the business of being a housewife, cooking and cleaning while he studied. Betty immediately had second thoughts. But upon return from their honeymoon, Betty learned that she was pregnant with their first child. As Dan returned to school, Betty took care of the homemaking and the breadwinning for the family, concealing her pregnancy in order to continue working to support them. In January of 1970, Betty went into labor one month early, and the unprepared young couple welcomed their first child into the world, a daughter, Kim. Between baby Kim's early arrival, Dan's studies, and Betty's work, the couple had almost nothing ready when she was born. Betty's mother sent over a few clothing essentials from Saks Fifth Avenue, and baby Kim spent her first few months sleeping in a dresser drawer as a crib. Shortly after Kim's birth, Dan completed his degree at Cornell, but soon told Betty that he intended to enroll at Harvard Law School. Dan wanted to become a medical malpractice attorney. Betty fully supported her husband and agreed to continue supporting the family financially and care for their daughter while Dan continued to attend law school. But Betty was soon pregnant again, and the financially strapped couple welcomed second daughter Lee in 1971. Now caring for an infant and a toddler, Betty was also working to pay the bills. With Dan in school full-time, it was up to Betty to make ends meet. Betty managed to keep the family afloat over the next few years by babysitting and selling Tupperware and Avon. When Dan finally graduated from Harvard Law School, he was offered a job at a prestigious law firm in San Diego. 
the family moved across the country to a new town and a whole new life. Their standard of living changed virtually overnight. Within a few years of beginning his new job at San Diego's oldest law firm, Gray, Carey, Ames & Fry, Dan became known as San Diego's preeminent plaintiff's lawyer in the field of medical malpractice. The Brodericks were now financially stable for the first time. Betty was finally able to quit her various jobs and focus on staying home and raising their children. All of Betty's sacrifices were finally paying off. By the time Daniel IV was born, in 1976, the Brodericks had purchased their first home, a five-bedroom house on Coral Reef Avenue in the well-to-do San Diego suburb of La Jolla. In 1978, with Betty's full support, Dan started his own law firm and had immediate success. Betty was now the proud wife of the top medical malpractice attorney in San Diego. In 1979, their fourth child, Rhett, was born. Betty and Dan had everything they ever dreamed of for their family. They joined not one, but two country clubs and became members at Warner Springs Ranch, a private resort that boasted San Diego's oldest and wealthiest families as members. Betty was proud of their shared success. After all, if not for her support, Dan wouldn't be where he was. By 1983, the Brodericks were millionaires. Dan jokingly called himself Count de Money. They soon had a ski condominium in Keystone, Colorado, a boat, and several luxury cars. They attended all of the most important events and wore designer clothing. Dan reportedly even got a nose job. Their children attended the county's most prestigious private schools and went to summer camps. The Brodericks went on ski vacations, cruises, and trips to Europe. They were a picture-perfect family. And Betty finally had everything she'd ever dreamed of. But behind closed doors, there was trouble in paradise. The more successful Dan became, the more the marriage broke down. In the fall of 1982, Dan's firm had hired a new receptionist, 21-year-old Linda Kokina. Linda was a bright and beautiful young blonde. In fact, she looked very similar to Betty when she was her age. Linda had recently been fired as a flight attendant from Delta Airlines. She hadn't been to college, and she couldn't type. But just a few months after she began working at the firm, Dan offered her a job as his personal legal assistant. At first, Betty was glad that Dan had finally hired someone. Dan had always worked alone and refused help. He worked late hours in the office, and brought his work home with him. Betty hoped that with an assistant, Dan might be able to spend more time at home with the children. 
but Betty soon started to notice a change in Dan. He became distant and critical. He even told Betty that he didn't love her anymore. Suspecting an affair, Betty demanded that he fire Linda. Dan refused and told Betty that she was crazy, forever thinking that he would be unfaithful to her. When Dan came home with a new red Corvette, Betty bought books about how to survive a midlife crisis. Betty knew that Dan was lying to her about Linda. She recognized all the signs, the late nights, the private phone calls, the beautiful assistant. It was classic, even cliche. But Betty was sure that it was only a phase. Her marriage was falling apart, but Betty was determined to fight for it. She had worked too hard to make their dreams happen. When Dan complained that Betty had let herself go, and according to Betty called her old, fat, ugly, and stupid, Betty lost weight and got plastic surgery. To compete with his young, beautiful assistant, Betty changed her wardrobe and grew her hair long again, like it was when they were first married. She fixed a crack in her tooth. She changed everything that Dan told her was the problem. But Betty's efforts only seemed to drive the couple further apart. In September of 1984, Dan told Betty that he discovered a crack in the foundation of their home that required extensive repairs. Betty packed up the family and moved into a large rental house. Two months later, on November 22, 1983, it was Dan's birthday. Betty decided to surprise Dan at his office with a dozen roses and a bottle of champagne. She hoped that the romantic surprise would show Dan that she still loved him and was committed to repairing their marriage. But when Betty arrived, Dan wasn't there, and neither was Linda. What Betty found in Dan's office were the remains of a party. Cake, balloons, and two champagne glasses. The receptionist told Betty that Dan and his assistant had gone to lunch. Betty decided to stay and wait. But Dan and Linda never returned. Betty's worst fears were confirmed. She had suspected this all along. But Dan just kept telling her that she was crazy. Betty snapped. She drove home, heartbroken, angry, and humiliated. Betty went up to their bedroom in a fury and yanked all of Dan's designer clothing from the hangers. Betty then went outside, piled them up, and lit a match. She burned it all, right in front of their children. When Dan finally returned home that night, Betty told him to, quote, get rid of the little bitch or get out. 
but Dan continued to deny having any relationship with Linda. He told Betty that she was imagining things. Three months later, in February of 1985, Dan moved out of the rental house, leaving Betty and the children behind and returning to the house in Coral Reef. Betty was convinced that this had been Dan's plan all along and that the crack in the foundation was simply an excuse to get her out of the house. By spring, Betty began to act erratic. Betty hoped that without her, Dan would quickly realize how much she did for him all those years and how much he needed her. But Dan wasn't coming around. Outraged, Betty began to make a series of mistakes that would eventually lead to her downfall. In an attempt to teach Dan a lesson and how difficult it is to raise children alone, Betty decided to drop her oldest daughter, Kim, on Dan's doorstep, unannounced. Dan wasn't home at the time, and Kim had no way of getting into the house. Betty drove off, leaving her daughter stranded on the front stoop. Over the next few weeks, Betty repeated this with their other children, one by one. But Dan, far from overwhelmed, simply hired babysitters. And now that the children were with him, he refused to release them back to Betty. Betty was furious. In June, she went to the house and trashed what used to be her and Dan's bedroom, shattering mirrors and spray-painting the walls. And on September 23rd, after 17 years of marriage, Dan filed for divorce. He used Betty's actions as proof of child abandonment and instability and won sole custody of the children. Betty lost her husband, her children, and now she was losing her mind. A month later, Dan confessed to Betty that she had been right all along. He had been having an affair with Linda, and they were in love. Betty returned to the house in Coral Reef, took a cream pie from the kitchen, and smeared it all over the master bedroom. Four days later, she threw bottles of wine through the windows and smashed the sliding glass door. Dan responded with a restraining order. Betty retaliated by smashing through a window with an umbrella. In January of 1986, Dan purchased a new home for Linda and the children. And in February, Dan sold the Coral Reef house. When Betty had refused to sign the sale papers, Dan used a little-known legal procedure that permitted a judge to sign over Betty's half, cutting her out of the sale completely. Betty flew into a rage and rushed to Dan's new house to confront him. When he refused to speak to her, 
she drove her Chevy Suburban into the front of the house. Dan dragged Betty from the car and called the police. When they arrived, Betty was taken away in a straitjacket and was committed involuntarily for the next three days in the San Diego County Mental Health Hospital. Broderick versus Broderick dragged out for years and became one of the most infamous divorce cases in the United States. Over the course of the divorce proceedings, Betty hired and fired five attorneys and was turned away by several more who said that they couldn't represent her because they were friends with her husband. Betty was having trouble finding competent legal counsel and she was fighting a legal battle with a man who was master of the arena. A man who she had helped to make and who was now the president of the San Diego Bar Association. I've been forced into a legal system that Dan controls, Betty told the press. It's obvious that I'm getting screwed. Over the course of their years-long divorce battle, Dan bought Betty a new house and began paying her $9,000 a month. She had a car, a closet full of designer clothing, a teaching credential, a real estate license, and plenty of friends, but in Betty's eyes, she had nothing. Dan had the children and complete financial control over Betty. The house he bought her was in his name and the allowance was at his sole discretion and Dan was pulling in around $140,000 a month. Dan was making over a million dollars a year and Betty believed that she deserved her fair share. Betty began calling Dan and Linda's house at all hours of the day and night, leaving obscene and threatening voice messages tormented by Dan's refusal to communicate with her. And the more Betty lashed out, the more Dan responded with calm, legal countermeasures and used her behavior against her. Dan began to use the allowance to control Betty's behavior. There were now conditions. For every obscene word that she left on he and Linda's answering machine, he would withhold $100. For every time that she set foot on his property, $250. For every entry into his house, $500. And if Betty ever took one of the children without his permission, he would deduct $1,000. But this did little to keep Betty in line. One month, Betty racked up so many fines that she actually owed Dan $1,300. The fight dragged on for three more years until the divorce was finalized on January 30th, 1989. It was over. A few weeks later, Betty bought a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. Over the next few months, Betty gained 60 pounds and sank deeper and deeper into a depression. Dan was now engaged to Linda. But Betty 
continued to refer to herself as Mrs. Broderick. To Betty, Linda had stolen her whole life from her, and Betty was desperate to turn her children against their soon-to-be stepmother. Betty told her children that when their father remarried, he wouldn't love them anymore, that he and Linda would want children of their own. She even told her youngest, Rhett, that if he really loved his mother, he would stab Linda in the stomach. On April 22, 1989, Dan and Linda were married. The wedding had tight security, and Linda even wanted Dan to wear a bulletproof vest. But Dan refused. He said that he, quote, doubted that Betty would kill her golden goose, end quote. Dan had hoped that after the divorce was final and he and Linda were married, Betty would move on. But Betty couldn't let go. When she received a letter from Dan's attorney threatening her with a contempt of court citation for the messages that she continued to leave on her ex-husband's answering machine, Betty finally broke. It was just before 5 a.m. on November 5, 1989, seven months after Dan and Linda's wedding. Betty couldn't sleep. She found the document from Dan's attorney. I can't take this anymore, she wrote on the bottom, them constantly insinuating I'm crazy. Betty took her daughter Kim's keys, put her gun in her purse, and drove to Dan and Linda's home. It was just before dawn when she used her daughter's house key and walked into their house. Betty crept up the stairs and into the master bedroom. Dan and Linda were sound asleep in their bed. Betty raised the gun and pulled the trigger five times. One bullet pierced through Linda's neck and lodged into her brain, killing her instantly. A second bullet hit Linda in her chest. Dan was shot in the back fracturing his rib and tearing through his right lung. Dan fell to the floor and reached for the phone, still alive and choking on his own blood. Another shot hit a bedside table. Another hit the wall. Betty, now out of bullets, panicked, disconnected the phone and ran out of the house. Linda was dead. Dan died a few minutes later. Betty called her oldest daughter Kim and confessed immediately. Later that day, Betty turned herself in to police. The shooting became the talk of San Diego. At society parties, men joked that it was be nice to the ex-wife week. Betty Broderick became the ultimate woman scorned, a symbol of the rage and desire for revenge so familiar to divorcing couples. Hundreds of people around the country 
many of them women, wrote letters and called into radio stations expressing sympathy for Betty Broderick. I've been there, one woman wrote. Lawyers and judges simply refuse to protect mothers against this type of legalized emotional terrorism. Many women saw themselves in Betty, a wife who refused to be broken when, at her husband's whim, she lost everything she had worked for and was replaced with a younger model. Another wrote, quote, The inequities in court proceedings and financial settlements are rarely believed or understood except by the women who experience them. Isn't it time we take a good look at our courts and our system of divorce? End quote. Nearly a year later, on October 22, 1990, the trial for the murders of Dan and Linda Broderick began. Spectators lined up to sit in the packed courtroom. It was the first San Diego court case to be broadcast on the Court TV cable network. Betty Broderick's defense argued for manslaughter, claiming that she was a battered wife who was physically, emotionally, and psychologically a lot of this was abused my fault by Dan Broderick. I was old and fat and ugly and boring and stupid. And that, you know, he just he just wasn't having any fun in life anymore. If you're old, fat, ugly, boring, and stupid, you um, try to be younger. And uh, you uh, go and try to get wrinkles taken off your face that weren't even there. You try and um, get your teeth fixed. I tried to be perfect. Absolutely, flawlessly perfect for Dan Broderick. When the kids went to bed, I slit my wrists and swallowed every pill I could find in the house. When Dan found me the next morning, with all the blood in the bed and everything, he, he started crying. And he said that he wished I hadn't done that, that what would the kids do without me, and that there was nothing going on with Linda. And, and how, how many times can he tell me that there's nothing going on with Linda? And so I wanted to believe him. The state argued that when Betty brought a gun to Dan and Linda's home, it became premeditated. And that amounted to first-degree murder. Betty tearfully claimed that she brought the gun to force Dan to speak to her and because she planned to kill herself in front of Dan and Linda. What were you going to do when you got over there? Just talk, talk to him like I have done before and just tell him that if you don't cut this out, I'm just going to kill myself. And I, I, I wanted to kill myself right in front of him and just splash my brains all over his damn house. What happened when you went into the door? Oh. It looked, looked like Linda moved, and and she went toward Dan, and Dan went toward the phone. They moved, and I moved, and it was over. What did you do? What's the first thing you remember? The, you remember pulling the trigger? No, I remember the noise of the gun. And how many times do you remember the gun going off? I remember the real loud noise five times. During the trial... Betty never denied firing the fatal shots, but she insisted that she had been pushed to do so, driven crazy by her husband's cheating, abuse, and gaslighting, a contentious, drawn-out divorce, and the ugly custody battle over their children. It was David and Goliath, the housewife against the president of the Bar Association. Jurors deliberated for four days. They were deadlocked. 
In November of 1990, the trial ended with a hung jury. Ten jurors voted to convict her of murder, and two voted to convict her of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Betty Broderick was sent back to jail to await a second trial. While waiting behind bars, she gave dozens of interviews to journalists. Betty showed no remorse and often spoke of her husband in the present tense, as though he were still alive, as though she was still fighting with him. I bought into a 1950s Leave it to Beaver marriage, Betty told journalist Amy Wallace, and he stole my whole life. In October of 1991, a year later, the second trial began. With lessons learned, the prosecution chipped away at Betty's sob story painting herself as the victim. The jury listened as the prosecution played dozens of the hostile and obscene messages left on Dan and Linda's answering machine. Hey, come get the kids. I want to get rid of them, but I don't like driving to your neighborhood. Hurry up and come get them. This is a message to head and the you have one hell of a nerve dumping the kids here on the sidewalk and zooming away without making any attempt to communicate with me about my plans for the weekend. I have very important things to ask you. You're making me mad. I'll kill you. One call stood out. It was a 34-minute call between Betty and her 11-year-old son, Danny. Danny picked up the phone and begged his mother to stop using the bad words. You both are separated, Mom. And he, he, he likes somebody else now. He doesn't like you anymore. And I mean, if, you've, got, you've got to stop saying the bad words. Why doesn't he like me anymore? Because he, he's, been, he's sick of you because you guys get in all these fights. What are these fights? I don't know. Even before that, you got in fights, Mom. I don't think so, Danny. See, you didn't know he was the secretary for the last two years or a night. Well, I with you, but you're just making it harder for all of us. The ones who live over there. If you stop saying bad words, everybody will be happier. At least I know I will. Toward the end of the conversation, Betty Broderick said to Danny, I wish he would just die and that Linda would get drunk and drive her car off a cliff. Betty's oldest daughter, Kim, testified that contrary to her mother's story, their mother had shown violent tendencies even before the affair, and Betty had thrown household objects at her father during arguments and threatened divorce several times over the 17-year marriage. Kim said that her mother spoke often of the rage she felt and vowed to someday kill her ex-husband and his new wife. She said, I'm going to kill the son of a bitch, recalled Kim. She said, I'm going to shoot him in the head. She said the world would be a better place and that everyone would thank her. 
Kim said that she often responded to her mother, Sure, Mom, and spend the rest of your life in jail. No, Betty had replied. No one will believe what happened to me. Kim Broderick testified that when she went to visit Betty in jail and asked her mother why she killed Dan and Linda, Betty told her, My choice was to kill them or kill myself, and I couldn't let him win. In December of 1991, Betty Broderick was found guilty of two counts of second-degree murder. The judge sentenced her to the maximum, 32 years to life. In 2010, Betty became eligible for parole. She continued to deny wrongdoing and refused to acknowledge her responsibility for the lives she took. Her parole was denied. Betty again was denied parole in November of 2011 and again in January of 2017. She is completely unrepentant, you know said San Diego Deputy District Attorney Richard Sachs, in complete denial that she murdered two innocent people. She just doesn't see any of her own part in this at all and turns around and blames it on them. She has no remorse and zero insight into the killings. She just basically said they drove me to do this. Betty disagreed. She wrote a handwritten letter to the producers of the television show Murder Made Me Famous. I have no one to speak for me. This was a case of domestic abuse, a pattern of coercive control that lasted throughout our marriage until the day I killed them. I have met all criteria for parole, and my release date was 2010. Now I am only a political prisoner. They have no reason to deny my parole. Betty Broderick's children are split when it comes to their mother's fate. Kim believes that her mother is right where she belongs. But Betty's youngest son, Rhett, said he believes that she should be released. She's a nice lady, Rhett told Oprah in an interview. Everyone here would like her if they spoke with her on any topic other than my dad. Keeping her in prison isn't really helping her. She's not a danger to society. The only two people she was a danger to are dead. The former Mrs. Broderick will not again be eligible for parole until the year 2032. She will be 85. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, Download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. And now, for 24-hour early access ad-free and bonus episodes, check out Murder Minute on Himalaya.